Signal is a podcast by the Bucks County Beacon. I'm your host and the Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril McAleco. Twice a month, we'll use this space to shine a light on the right-wing extremist currents streaming through Bucks County and beyond. We'll talk to guests who will help listeners navigate these perilous political waters by providing insight, analysis, and organizing solutions so that we can steer the community toward calmer, saner, progressive routes. Black history is a history of resistance and liberation. And I think this explains why, in part, we've seen such a white lash in a war against black studies and black history in general, being waged by right-wing reactionary groups like Moms for Liberty, as well as Republican lawmakers. Today, I'm joined by Rand Miller. Rand is an author, educator, and advocate for the education of black children in the Delaware Valley region. His experience as an author and writer spans over 10 years, and his experience in both K-12 settings and higher education spans over 15 years. Today, we talk about his recently published book, Resistance Stories from Black History for Kids. Hi, Rand. Welcome to The Signal. Hi. Thank you for having me. Before we speak about your book, Resistance Stories from Black History for Kids, inspiring people and events that every kid should know, can you tell us first how and why you became interested in history? Oh, man. So I remember as a young student learning a number of different things. And I think it really started, I'd say about like eighth grade. I really enjoyed um, learning uh, some of the history of the United States, although it wasn't really a full picture. But I remember applying to uh, high school. I went to a, a Catholic high school and part of the application process was picking certain electives to take. And one of the electives that I wanted to take was called world and European history. I got to take it my 10th grade year at the school. And in the middle of learning all of that stuff, I, I had asked uh, the question, you know, how don't, why is there uh, not a African history course? Why is there not a history course on African-American history? And no one at the school could really give me an answer. And no one at the school really did anything about it. Um, so when I became a teacher, for me, it was always about teaching the things that I did not know. Um, and so that created this world of you know, really exploring. And that started in college with my college professor. So they really gave me the tools to dig and, and find out information. And so that's something that I've always continued to do. And it served me well, certainly served my students well with regards to the information that we cover in our classes. So why did you decide to write this book and why the focus on resistance? So I've been wanting to write a, a, a book for a while with respect to history, but never quite understood where I wanted to go with it. But uh, it, it occurred to me that resistance is something that we don't often speak about. Uh, it's something I always talk about in my classes and something that I try to focus on just to make the point that that African-Americans were complicit in their liberation. Um, but considering all of the things going on in our country, considering the the war against black studies, the war against black history, I thought that it was really uh, a great time to put something together where uh, we really explored uh, a part of our history that we don't often talk about. And it also gave me an opportunity to continue in the tradition of scholars that have come before me, the Carter Woodson's, John Henry Clark, Arturo Schomburg's, where, you know, African-American history starts in Africa. It does not start with our uh, and the enslavement of our ancestors. So I wanted to really put a book together that 
that made that point clear, but also made the point that black people uh, had a huge, if not major, if not primary role uh, in the liberation of ourselves. And that's something I actually wanted to talk about. Um, Your book, unlike, you know, especially like school textbooks, centers black people as the protagonists of their own story written in the active voice right and, and so th- this is a need that you saw based on your own experiences as a student yeah yeah absolutely uh, as a student you know you learn the the basics right about the united states the, the formation of the united states you learn about for example uh, the colonies forming and, and and this new way of being happening and then this idea of revolution for the sake of 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 you know trying to respond to tyranny we don't often speak or or teach or learn about the united states being a white settler colonial project we don't often discuss the the reality that all of this land was taken away from the indigenous people who lived here we don't often teach or discuss the the real reason behind the revolutionary war and, and and having to do with the fear that great britain was going to abolish enslavement and so abolishing enslavement in britain meant abolishing enslavement in the colonies as you know being under the control of great britain so we don't talk about those things and we don't talk about certainly how african americans understanding uh, that at the time how they went about making their decisions for how they were to liberate themselves under those conditions. And so, you know, as a student learning the, the former and not the latter, it, it, it really struck me when, when we came to say Black History Month, like right now, and you hear all these stories and say, well, why aren't we learning that in, in our regular classes? Why is that relegated to one month out of the year? Certainly that's not what Dr. Carter G. Woodson intended, but, um, you know, it really gotten me into a place of wanting to do more discovery and and actually utilize that as inspiration for putting this book together. One of the inspirations for putting it together. So you're, the history that you write about is a global history, which is something that you mentioned earlier. It starts off in Africa in Kemet, or what would be recognized today as modern day Egypt. Uh, why did you decide to start your story there? So... Um, I wanted to to go there because there is a history of devaluing African people in that part of the region, particularly when we know that the Egyptians influenced heavily Greek uh, civilization. And then, of course, Greek civilization was was, you know, used for for Romans influences. And so when we speak of Egypt, when we speak of Kemet, Historically, there have been challenges and debates as to say whether or not those those folks were African people. And so that is a centering of of Europeans as to say that their culture and and the beauty and the majesty of of what we are as the United States democracy and all of these sort of things, it did not stem from a black people. But in reality, we know that the the people of Kemet were black. They were black African people uh, who descended from lands further south uh, from them. And, and Kemet means the black land. And so I wanted to really begin early in the book with that, just to say that for all of the displaying of the United States as being the descendants of the Greeks, the Greeks got a lot of their culture, a lot of their influence from Kemet, and Kemet 
uh, is in Africa and and the people were black. And so I wanted to make that that point really to establish the idea of where we really find our lineage, whether it's res- with respect to politics, whether it's respect to religion, much of what we are stems from Africa. And, and unfortunately, because of the Eurocentric centering, uh, we have not told that story accurately. Later in the book, you take readers on a journey to Haiti to learn about the Haitian Revolution and the country's independence. How did these historical events impact the United States? The, the Haitian Revolution was uh, integral to the United States and, and particularly the, the history of manifest destiny, if you will. Not to say that, that the Haitians were for it, but it's just to say that the United States took advantage of a situation. Uh, the United States had tried to purchase New Orleans for a long time when it was under the control of the Spanish. They tried to purchase it when the French regained control. They tried to purchase it from Napoleon, uh, and Napoleon did not accept the offer. I think it was, I might be getting my numbers wrong, but it might have been $10 million for the city. Uh, He didn't take the money. Things changed when the Haitian Revolution came about. Uh, Napoleon had to divert resources to Saint-Domingue, which was the name um, for Haiti at the time under the French. And that required that he take away resources from other places. And unfortunately for him, he could not dedicate his time uh, to the Louisiana Territory in the United States. And as a result of having to dedicate many resources to Haiti, because those Haitians were a thorn in his side, so much so uh, that uh, in France, he was teased. He was, uh, you know, Toussaint uh, Louverture was called the Black Bonaparte. And uh, Napoleon was so incensed. He, he said, I, I will do anything, I'm paraphrasing, to make sure that that these Black people do not take over and that Black people don't see themselves able to do what they're doing in Haiti. And so that opened the door for the United States to say, hey, if if you're not looking at this territory, if you're not doing anything with it, we'll take it off your hands. And I think I believe they paid for the entire territory uh, 15 million dollars where they were going to spend 10 on New Orleans. But now they got everything. Uh, And so the Haitian Revolution really made it uh, absolutely possible for. Uh, the United States to get the territory that that it has, those states that we know to this very day. And nevertheless, the United States still at the time uh, abhorred what was going on in Haiti. Um, the, the French enslavers that came to the United States, they went to New Orleans, they came as north as Philadelphia. They went to South Carolina. They were afraid, deathly afraid, and the United States was you know, in the the position to benefit, but also make sure that they did not allow for what was happening in Haiti to happen uh, at its borders. That was essentially the threat of a good example for Black Americans, Black enslaved Americans living at the time. That's what Haiti was. Absolutely. In fact, many um, Haitians, for example, that that traveled to South Carolina, uh, those Haitians were in contact and talking to Denmark Vesey. Uh, who who was planning a uh, enslaved revolt? Uh, there were a number of Haitian uh, folks that came to Virginia and were in contact with Nat Turner as well. So 
one thing about the Haitians, and I speak about in this book, that, that it wasn't just about their own liberation, but about the liberation of African people throughout the diaspora. Um, and they were looking, in one of the chapters, I talk about how they were looking to work with the uh, Mexican government, um, you know, under the leadership of Vicente Guerrero, the first black uh, president in North America who happened to be in Mexico. And over the years, even after his assassination, the Mexicans were working with the Haitians. They were looking to liberate Cuba. Uh, if it weren't for Spain promising their the uh, recognition of Mexico as a result of talking to the British and the United States, who wanted nothing to do with that. So the, the, the cool thing about what Haiti had done was they weren't just trying to liberate themselves, but they were trying to create allies amongst free Black nations throughout um, the Western Hemisphere. You brought up revolts. Let's talk about that a little more. Um, in your book, you cite a report by the Southern Poverty Law Center noting that you know students have an in incomplete, if not distorted, understanding of the history of slavery in the country. And one of one area is that you know this belief um, that you know freedom was something given to blacks, whether from abolitionists or the federal government. But again going back to the idea of black people as protagonists in their own history can you talk about black slave-led revolts as a form of resistance um, in that journey to freedom sure uh, herbert apthaker the the historian marxist historian talked about the various forms of resistance and um, he wrote a number of scholarly articles as well as books um, that i reference in my book uh, about the the sort of history of revolts in the United States. And, and according to Dr. Aptiker, there are roughly 250 documented uh, revolts of enslaved Africans in the United States. And that's just what's documented. There may be more that, that we're unaware of. And so I think that there's this idea that African-Americans, uh, th their, their point of resistance was simply to run away. But revolt was a, a, something that happened uh, fairly often, more often than is likely discussed. And not only in southern states, revolts happened in northern states as well. There are certainly uh, the, the, the New York City revolts of 1712 and 1741. There are certainly a number of revolts that happened uh, in the state of New Jersey, where I'm located, uh, in North Jersey in particular. Uh, so African-Americans revolted regularly. It wasn't something that was rare. It wasn't something that did not happen. And, and even revolt in the sense of fighting in war. African-Americans utilize war as an opportunity to revolt and fight against the United States. Often in war, we, we, we talk about African-Americans who fought with the United States to gain their freedom, but we never discuss the Africans who fought against the United States. And I'm naming, uh, specifically thinking about the uh, American Revolution, those Africans who fought with the British early on. If it weren't for those Africans fighting with the British and beating the United States, George Washington would not have uh, allowed African-Americans to fight uh, with the Americans. I'm thinking about the war in 1812. Certainly the African-Americans fought with the British again to get their freedom as well. And so African-Americans uh, were not afraid to utilize the violence that was perpetuated against them 
for the sake of their own liberation, for the sake of their freedom. Uh, and, and they did this relatively often. But again, it's something that we don't speak about. It's something that, that we don't talk about. We only mention, you know, your Nat Turner's, uh, again, Denmark Vesey, who, whose revolt was was cut short. Uh, Gabriel Prosser, we think about, whose revolt was cut short. But we don't make those real discussions about that even to the extent that um i speak about in the book the 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 black seminoles we don't talk about what those revolts look like when you have african americans connecting with indigenous people um through ethnogenesis to create a new group of people who revolted against the united states in fact that the the trail of tears the removal of indigenous folks didn't go quietly and and that had to do with africans african americans fighting with uh, the indigenous in Florida, making it very difficult for uh, the Trail of Tears, the Indian Removal Act, to be made complete. And these wars, these seminal wars, went on for you know close to twenty years uh, before the United States was successful in its its desires to have manifest destiny. So that point is just to say, you know, we need to speak more about revolts of African Americans because that's as much a part of our story as a country as anything else. Another resistance leader you write about is Harriet Tubman. Um, in fact, you call her the greatest American ever. Why do you think she deserves that title? I think she has earned that title based on the work that she has done. Not only did she utilize her, her gifts and talents to uh, free herself, not only did she do so to free her family, but she freed a number of, of enslaved Africans going back and forth. Not only that, um, but she worked in in various places in the north in Philadelphia. She worked she worked in New Jersey, South Jersey particularly, to save money to make those trips. Not only that, uh, but when she made those trips, she did so with 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 weapons on her to not be captured again. She she had connections, none knowing the land, knowing the people, particularly if any indigenous folks. Not only that. She served in the Civil War. She served as a, as a spy. She served as a nurse. She also led uh, a group of, of black soldiers into battle where she did battle. Harriet Tubman represents the overall spirit of liberation, um, not just for African-Americans, but for, for all people. And it is no accident in my mind that it was a black woman who led this. And, and for me, who she was, what she stood for, uh, her mission, she, she did not die rich. She did not die, you know, with, with a bunch of wealth, but she was able to save her family. She was able to uh, build a home for them in Canada. She was able to, to try and help others. And, and I, I just think that she is the greatest American who ever lived, if there ever was one, due to the work that she has done. And, you know, I think back to the talk about putting her on the $20 bill. That's something that I don't believe, not to speak for Harriet Tubman, God rest her soul, but she would want, she fought against the mechanisms of racial capitalism. Her work was all about that. And so to be put on a dollar bill um, is to limit the impact that she's actually had. Uh, I don't think that we quite reverence Harriet Tubman in the way that we should, considering her her battles as a person, uh, being being hit over the head as a child that had that kind of 
went along with her throughout her life where she had moments where she blacked out um, the tragedy that she faced in her her marriage that not being successful nevertheless persevering uh, through all of the challenges to do the things that she's done she's absolutely an amazing uh, amazing person that that we should give more reverence and celebration to let's talk about another black woman resistance leader the teaching of rosa parks i think serves as a perfect example of the whitewashing and sanitizing of history you know despite what we're taught she wasn't just a tired seamstress who wouldn't move from her bus seat she was so much more can you tell us about her radical and activist background that gets left off the pages of history yeah, Rosa Parks was a member of the NAACP in in Montgomery, and the work that had been done, where she uh, sat in the bus, right, sat at the the, the seat, um, that had been organized. And this isn't to take any credit away from her, but it's just to say that these things don't happen in a vacuum. Um, I think that the teaching of Rosa Parks has been a disservice because, again, when we Limit it to Rosa Parks being the individual to make a decision. We don't we don't give credit to the the groups and the activism that helped to create that situation. Uh, and when we don't do that, we fail to make the connection between how you know organizing and institution building is what fights institutions. It's very hard for an individual to to fight an institution. And even if there is some sort of victory, um, the victory may be short-lived. The victory may be compromised, right? Rosa Parks was a part of an institution, the NAACP. Um, and, and, and those folks, the NAACP, have been able to fight major institutions that were racist on behalf of Black people. And so there was an organized effort uh, amongst numerous Black women who sat on the bus. Uh, Rosa Parks was not the first, um, but she was the one to get the sort of publicity that started what we knew uh, as the Montgomery bus boycott. And the craziest thing about the story is she wasn't even at the front of the bus. She was in the front of the colored section of the bus. And the the uh, white person that was looking to sit was wanting to sit in that front area of the colored section because the white area was taken and certainly what Rosa Parks had to do was go all the way to the back. Uh, and they did that intentionally. Uh, it wasn't uh, done, you know, haphazardly. It was done that way intentionally to prevent this idea of rebel rousing. Because if you have her sitting in the white section, it can be said, oh, you knew you weren't supposed to do that versus her sitting in the colored section. She was sitting where, quote unquote, she was supposed to sit, and yet she still faced the the discrimination, which makes it even worse. Uh, so, again, that was with intention. And also, it wasn't just what she did in Montgomery, but there's also the work of when she moved to Detroit. She continued to do civil rights work. Notably, she worked for uh, Congressman John Conyers, uh, specifically helping him with uh, putting together the uh, legislation, the bill 
uh, for reparations. In addition to that, she helped him get elected in the first place, making a call and working with Dr. King to come up to Detroit uh, to campaign on his behalf. Rosa Parks, uh, her story is not completely told either. We've limited her to one moment in time when in reality there is so much to who she was as an American as well. And she also um, trained or participated in trainings at the Highlander Center as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about who the deacons of defense were? Yes. So the deacons of defense were uh, members of various black church congregations in the South. Uh, at, at the at the time, um, you had a number of uh, unfortunate events happening at churches, bombings at churches. Uh, you had cross burnings at churches, and much of the activism that came out of the civil rights movement came out of the black church, which is why they were a target. Uh, of course, Dr. King, being a a pastor of a church leading his group, the SCLC, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, they promoted nonviolence. Uh, however, there was, of course, this tension, this struggle between nonviolence and self-defense. I think that people think that, you know, the likes of, of Malcolm X and others were promoting violence. They weren't promoting violence. They were promoting self-defense. And the deacons for defense uh, were a group of men who said, yeah, we're going to defend our people as they are out. We're not looking to be violent, but we're not looking to be naive to say that we aren't aware of what's going on. Um, a deacon in the in the church, Christian church, uh, in this context, an African-American church, black church, they are uh, responsible for doing a number of things. And, and one of those things, they're sort of like an elder in the way of, you know, ensuring that everything is OK with respect to operations in the church, but also with respect to safety um, in a church. And so those men took it upon themselves to uh, arm themselves to make sure that when engaged in civil rights activity, members of the churches that come together were protected and were safe, uh, whether they were marching, whether they were protesting um, due to, you know, of course, white supremacists that may have been around, KKK members that were around. Uh, and they came into conflict with Dr. King. There were a number of instances where they uh, merged in terms of doing activism, um, but they came in conflict with Dr. King with respect to what their philosophy was versus his. Um, and so, again, that's just another example of um, a story that we don't talk about. Civil rights uh, has been hijacked with the, the philosophy of nonviolence. And I don't say that as, you know, Dr. King hijacking it. I'm talking about sort of the apologist. Um, the the, the, the uh, racist apologist who will say, well, you know, anything that wasn't nonviolent is illegitimate. And that's not the case at all. And so, you know, African-Americans, again, resistance, fighting back against any white oppression uh, is is about resisting to the extent that if, if, if we have to defend ourselves, in order to be free, that's what we are going to do. And so the deacons of defense were just continuing in that uh, mode of black resistance. Why do you think we're seeing such a backlash or what some have called a conservative white lash to teaching history today and, and specifically the history of racism in the country, um, the history of the country continuing to struggle to overcome this um, as well as black resistance? 
I think that it, it, there are a number of different reasons that we can say that, right? And I think that oftentimes what is being told in the mainstream is that talking about this is making white people feel guilty. Talking about this is making white people feel like they did something wrong when it was not them that were there, but maybe ancestors of the sort. And and there may be some truth to that, right? There may be some truth to that. But I don't believe that that's what it is. I believe that the powers that be, when we look at the particularly the white power structure, a New York Times released an article a few years ago where it talked about 80 percent of the people in power in this country, whether it's Congress or businesses or uh, police and things of that nature, 80% of the people are white. So when I say white power structure, I'm specifically meaning those people in charge of the institutions and systems of our society. When you look at the history of the United States, when you look at black history as it relates, when you learn, you have not the privilege of staying the same. You have to change because you learn information. If you don't know how to cook and you're taught how to cook, you're never the same. Now you can go to the supermarket, buy food, and cook as it relates to your, your person. When you learn history, you can't carry on in the same way. You have to make a change. And when we talk about black history, when we talk about the history of white supremacy, racial capitalism, you know, uh, all of those things, it requires that people look at the world different in a way to say, how do we you know, change the mechanisms of our society in order to not continue or perpetuate what's been going on over history. The powers that be don't want that. The powers that be don't want people to be awakened <laughs> to to uh, uh, Ron DeSantis's point, too woke, right? They don't want that because if people are awakened to the realities of, of history, then it requires them to really do some introspection in a way to change. And that's not going to be everybody. Some people are going to say, well, I like the way things are. I don't like the way things can be if we change. And that's the challenge for a lot of white people. I think that that is the fear that white people will have to wrestle with history in a way where they say to themselves, listen, am am I going to continue to perpetuate what's going on? Or am I looking to change the best ways that I know how? Those conversations will will, uh, foment a number of people looking at the way that their politics are, looking at the way that they worship, looking at the way that they view the world, looking at the way that they recognize the economic structures of our society. Maybe they stop listening to mainstream news. Maybe they listen to international news now. Maybe they don't fall for the Southern strategy. You know, maybe they're in the words of Lyndon Johnson, they're not allowing uh, people to pick their pockets, right? Um, There is a genuine fear of the power structure. That if people are educated, that they will no longer tolerate the BS of the power structure and that they will see the commonalities amongst people who don't look like them, particularly black people, in the ways that this system has harmed everybody. It harms everybody. It doesn't just harm black people. It harms white people. And, and, and you know, W.B.E. Du Bois talked about the, the, the merging, if, if the merging of the white proletariat and the black proletariat you would have seen something change in this country. But because the power structure understood that, they kept folks separate. Uh, There's a great skit on Saturday Night Live with Tom Hanks. It's it's Black Jeopardy. 
and they bring Tom Hanks on and he has on this MAGA hat and they're answering questions. And throughout the skit, they come to realize that this white guy with this MAGA hat has a lot in common with these black people in terms of the way that they think. And it just goes to show that if you take working class folk, if you take poor folk on both sides, um, that can really make a change. That's what got Fred Hampton shot and assassinated. He was working with the young Patriots. Those folks had uh, the, the stars and bars as as their logo, working with the Black Panthers uh, in Chicago, along with the Young Lords, the Puerto Rican organization. And that absolutely scares folks. So so for me, it's just a matter of, you know, trying to control narratives, but also trying to control the mindset of individuals to not coalesce to fight against the power structure that is harming us all using capitalism and using white supremacy to do so. Yeah, I think that would actually make a a great topic for another episode, kind of the the history of and kind of hopefully future of building a, you know, radical multiracial working class rainbow coalition yeah, kind of yeah. liberate ourselves. Um, just two more questions. Um, first, what are you reading now these days? Any 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 books on your shelf that you're looking into? Um, you know, that's tackling uh, history and, and Black history specifically. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm reading three books right now. Two new ones and an oldie but a goodie. The first book that I'm reading is uh, King by I believe is it Jonathan Elig uh, or Ig? I'm, I'm mispronouncing his name. Um, forgive me. But I'm reading his book, which is um, a really great book in, in retrospective, a, a breath of um, of just King's life, you know, and it's just really awesome just to learn about sort of the 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 history of of Dr. King and in a fascinating, deep way. It's really good book. I'm like I'd say about like 10 chapters in. Um, which is really good. Um, yeah, love that book. The second book is, uh, I'm trying to think of it. Oh, uh, Black Folk, The Root of the uh, Black Working Class by Blair Kelly. Uh, really an awesome book. Uh, you know, thinking about the election of 2024 and even thinking about 2020 and 2016, you know, there was a lot of talk about the white working class and, and appealing to them, but not a real discussion or, or attention given to the black working class. So, you know, that's been a really uh, fun book to read as well. And the third book that I had just to, that I keep in, in my pocket is the, the pedagogy of the oppressed. I'm, I'm, I'm always reading through that and, and, you know, learning new things as I'm, I'm reading through. So that, that's, those are the books that I have on on my shelf that I'm looking at right now, I can tell you some the two that I finished. One would be Fear of a Black Republic. Uh, that's by Leslie Alexander, really looking at the history of Haiti uh, in a very different way. That, that book was really, um, really uh, awesome. And the other book, uh, it is, it's called White Philanthropy by Maribel Moray, Carnegie Corporation, you know, the the American dilemma, right? The, it's basically talking about the making of a new white order, world order, if you will, from that. And so that book was just super insightful um, just on, on how 
um, white philanthropists uh, utilize their resources in order to to dictate narratives, um, particularly about people of color, but especially about black people and, and utilize that to do the kind of research that promotes a lot of these um, right wing narratives that people actually believe. So it, it, those are just some really good pieces um, that I've got tackled over the last couple of months. Great, thanks. And and let's have a little fun with this last question as well. Um, you're organizing a symposium on Black history to help understand the present and think about ways to chart a more racially just future. Name three people living or from history who you would invite to participate and why. Oh, man, that's so good. <laughs> um. Three people on symposium talking about the importance of learning black history. So I think I would be remiss if I did not invite Carter Woodson, uh, Dr. Carter G. Woodson, the father of black history. You have to invite him. Um, so, you know, creating Negro History Week, the Black History Month, the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. You got to invite him. I think the second person that I'd like to invite i think a journalist and i'm thinking of um ida b wells barnett uh someone who was detailing the lynchings of african americans when no one else did someone whose coverage was so hard-hitting that she was ran out of memphis tennessee and just did the work of a journalist reporting on this stuff i think the historian the journalist i think that those two are are absolutely integral for my last person, man, I'd have to go Malcolm X, El Hajj Malik El Shabazz. I would have to go there. Uh, the man was self-taught in his history and and understood what it was to be lied to about his history. And 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 not only that, but you know, most often people think of the time that he had with the Nation of Islam, not thinking about his own conversion after that. I think that we lost so much when he was uh, assassinated uh, to have him speak about that as well. I think for me, yeah, those three, it would be Carter Woodson, Ida B. Wells, Barnett and, and Malcolm X. Great. Well, well, thanks so much, Ran. Um, I, I really want to encourage listeners, um, you know, if you want to celebrate black history, um, not just black history month, but black history, please go to your local bookstore and pick up a copy of resistance stories from black history for kids, which after reading it, I will tell you, it's not just for kids. You will enjoy it yourself. You can read it with your kids if you'd like. But Rand, thanks again for coming on The Signal. I appreciate it. No, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. This has been The Signal, a podcast by the Bucks County Beacon. I'm Cyril Michaleko, Editor-in-Chief and Host. For more progressive news, analysis, and opinion from Bucks County and beyond, go to www.buckscountybeacon.com.